The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on I'm people that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the evening of October 18th, 1996, 17-year-old Kane Story came over to see his friend Brian Bowling, who lived with his family in a trailer near Rome, Georgia. Kane had brought along his father's revolver, and the two boys sat in Brian's bed and passed it back and forth, pretending to play Russian roulette, while Brian talked to his girlfriend Caprice on the phone. Suddenly, Caprice heard screaming, and then a few moments later, she heard someone hang up the phone. Brian had been shot in the head and was rushed to the hospital, where he died the next day. Initially, Kane told police that his friend had accidentally shot himself, but during a second interrogation two days later, Kane made a statement that the gun had been in his hand when it went off, though he insisted it had been an accident. Then a witness came forward, claiming that Brian, Kane, and their friend Lee Clark had all been members of a vicious gang called the Freebirds and that Brian's death had been retaliation for him snitching about a theft that they'd committed. So police began investigating the incident as a homicide, ultimately charging Kane and Lee with Brian's murder. At trial, a witness testified that Kane and Lee had bragged to her about exacting their revenge on Brian, and a handwritten note found tucked into Brian's coffin corroborated the gang-killing narrative. It was right there in black and white. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Susan Simpson, host of the podcast Proof and Undisclosed, filling in for Jason Flom. Today's case is one that Jacinda Davis and I covered in season one of Proof. In 1996, 15-year-old Brian Bowling died of a gunshot wound to the head, and eventually his 17-year-old friends, Lee Clark and Kane Story, were wrongfully convicted of his death, and a confluence of fabrications, coercion, and misconduct led to their arrest and conviction. And we're about to get to all of that. But first... Here today to share his incredible story is Lee Clark. Lee, it's great to see you again. Yeah, see you too, Susan. Now, Lee, before we get into everything that happened, can you tell the audience a little bit about you? I was born in Rome, Georgia, Floyd County. Most of my childhood, my early childhood, I grew up in Armurchie. 
I went to Glenwood Elementary School. I've only got one blood brother, my brother Jamie, and I've got stepsister, stepbrother, Candy and Mark. And in the lead up to all of this, to what happened in 1996, you were 17 years old and living in a small community south of Rome, Georgia called Silver Creek. At that point in my life, I was I was young. Thought I knew it all. I was really dumber than a box of rocks is what my daddy used to tell me. He's probably right too. I mean, I was getting into a lot of trouble back in 1996, doing stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing and breaking into people's homes and stuff like that. And I wasn't old enough to do it, but we, we drank a little bit if we get alcohol. If not that, we'd be smoking marijuana or something, just hanging out as kids, doing doing crazy, stupid junk kids do, teenagers do. And one of your oldest friends was Kane. Tell me about him. Kane, when we were coming up, coming through high school and stuff, he would be involved in some of the stuff I was doing. But Kane, he was more of a kind of goody two-shoes. He hung out with the preppy crowd a lot. They all time questioned him a lot about why he was hanging out with me. and That's just because of the way I was back in. I was just a young, stupid teenage kid. I mean, I wasn't bad as I made out to be. I mean, I just wanted people to think that, so a lot of people would stay away from me. And one of the, the boys that you guys hung out with was a guy named Brian Bowling. How'd you know Brian? I originally met Brian through Kane. When Kane moved out to Silver Creek, he introduced me to Brian. And me and Brian, we became friends. Me and Brian weren't as close as Kane and Brian were. I mean, I like Brian. I mean, I love Brian. He was a good friend of mine. It just uh, As I got a little bit older, it, me being down there at his house became less frequent. So... In October of 96, there was an incident that happened when you were over at Kane's house. Tell me about that. It was on October the 3rd, 1996. That day haunts me. Still to this day, is something uh, a regret of mine that I live with. It's the day that uh, I went to Kane's house and all of us teenage boys over me, Kane, his buddy Joseph Wilkins, and a buddy of mine named Pete Jordan. We all decided we was going to steal Kane's daddy's safe from him. So the four of you... Stole the safe from Kane's dad, took it down to the woods, busted it up, got some cash out of it. How long did y'all get away with the crime? I was arrested four days after we stole this uh, safe. Kane and his buddy Joseph Wilkins, they were arrested the day we stole it. And then my friend Pete Jordan was arrested three days later on October the 10th. Yeah, so it was not the crime of the century. Y'all did not get away with it for <laughs> no, more than a few no. hours. No, it was straight stupidity is what it was. Yeah. Now, so Brian lived just down the hill from Kane, but he had nothing to do with this safe theft, right? No, no, he didn't have anything to do with it. But as we'll see, that incident, along with Brian's close friendship with Kane, became important to the prosecution's case. But for now, let's go back to just after the safe heist. The night this happened, both Kane and his friend Joseph Wilkins were both arrested. And since shortly after, you and your friend Pete Jordan were also arrested, well, logically, it made sense that either... Kane or Joseph Wilkins had been the ones to give you up. Again, though, this was not the crime of the century. The stakes were pretty low. And that brings us to what happened on October 18th, 1996. On October 18th? Mm-hmm. So I went and met Kane that day because I know I'd been arrested and charged. I just wanted to find out for him if it had been his buddy Joseph that had told on us or if it was, had been Kane that did it. I, I knew it had to be one of them. I just wasn't sure which one. And I met him. He sat there. He's telling me, swearing up down to me. It wasn't him. He didn't do it. He don't know who did it. And he played that on and on, so it's leading me to believe his, his friend Joseph was one told on us. Well, come to find out at trial, it was both Kane and Joseph that had told on us. Yeah. So. But that night, you talked to Kane. He's like, no, man, wasn't me. I didn't tell on y'all. And your little brother was there too, right? Yes, he was there. Yeah, my little brother, so Jamie. The three of you ended up just kind of hanging out for a while. Yeah. Yeah, we just rode around, went and shoot some pool and stuff like that. 
what kind of set this all into motion, though, was that night before Kane went out to meet with you and Jamie, he decided to grab a revolver from his dad's bedside table. He was going to go target shooting. It was not the smartest idea since he was already in trouble with his dad. But, well, while you're hanging out, he pulls the gun out and he shows it to you and even fires it out of a car window while you're driving around, just playing around. Eventually, you decided to take him home. I wasn't going back to his house because I wasn't going to take no chance of his parents being home, his mom or anything, or his dad. I didn't want them, either one of them see me back at his house. So I dropped him off, same place I picked him up at, Silver Creek Mini Market. And, you know, I think about something now that I told Kane back then, that uh, me telling him this, I, I could still hear it so clearly in my head. It wakes me up sometimes in the middle of the night. Still to this day, I told him when we was pulling up and I was getting out, I told him, I said, look, we've done stole your daddy's safe. And now here it is, you've got your daddy's gun on you. I said, if your daddy comes in and sees that gun gone, he's going to swear up down that we stole that too. So I don't need this hanging over me like this. Take that gun back home where you got it from. Well, he sits there and tells me, yeah, man, I'm going to do it. I said, okay, I'm serious, man. Just get out the car, go straight home, put that gun back. He swears up and down to me he's going to do it and does the complete opposite of what he just told me he was finna do. Yeah, after he dropped him off at the Mini Mart, Kane did not go directly home. Instead, he stopped at Brian's trailer on the way there. Now, Brian's parents, his sister, and her boyfriend, they were all in the living room watching TV with some neighbors, Wayne and Charlie Childers, when Kane got there. Kane knocked on the door, said hi to everyone. They told him that Brian's back in the bedroom talking to his girlfriend, Caprice. So he goes back there and finds Brian, says hi. And, you know, they, they're two teenage boys on the phone with the girlfriend, so they start passing the phone back and forth, talking to her. Then at some point, Kane brings out his gun and shows it to Brian. And he's like, hey, man, look what I got. So what happened then? Well, the way Kane explains it to me, he's in there and him and Brian put a bullet in the gun. He says they started playing Russian roulette and he said they was cheating. They was putting it in there and they was taking the chamber of a revolver. Anybody who knows anything about a revolver knows if you're looking down at it from the back of it, you can see where the bullets are at. And that's what they were doing. They were taking the revolver and they were spinning it to the bottom and making sure the bullets weren't nowhere around down there. And then they were cocking it, sticking it to their head and pulling the trigger. And Kane says they had went back a couple of rounds like this, back and forth. And the whole time, Brian is on the phone with his girlfriend, Caprice Hoyt. And he tells Kane to tell her what I'm doing. So Kane tells her he's playing Russian roulette. Now, at first, she didn't know what it was. I mean, she was a little alarmed by it, but she didn't know what Russian roulette was. I mean, she was telling him to tell him to stop, but she, I, she didn't understand fully what he was in there doing, sticking it to his head, pulling the trigger. Until her mom came in later, after the fact, and she asked her mom what Russian roulette was, and her mom told her what it was. Well, Kane, he plays it, and then Brian just, he says, let me see that gun. Well, Kane says he snatched it from him, opened it up, spun the cylinder, slapped it back in, caught the hammer back. When Brian stuck it to his head, Kane says he looked at him and told him, said, don't do it, bro. He said, it's the one. Now, Kane says that Brian looked at him and said, you think so, and pulled the trigger. Now, that's what Kane has told me every time I've talked to him about this stuff. Every time I've confronted him about it, he's always told me the same thing. And the truth be told right now, I mean, I can't tell you 100% positive what went down in there. But that's like I've told you before, Susan. Look, I've struggled with that stuff for many, many years. If he may have accidentally did it and didn't want to tell me, but there's too much stuff to support it. And that's why I choose to believe it. And a lot of what was observed immediately after the shooting supports what Kane says. The folks in the living room who'd heard this gunshot rushed into Brian's room and found him there on the floor with blood pooled around his head. And critically, the gun was underneath Brian, where he was lying on the floor. And Caprice was still on the phone. She was yelling, trying to figure out what was happening. She could hear the screaming, heard someone say they got to call her back, and the line going dead. 
as the family then calls 911. Very quickly after that, the police and paramedics arrive, and Brian was transported to the hospital as he fought for his life. Meanwhile, though, Lee, you had no idea that any of this was happening. After you dropped Kane off, what did you do the rest of the night? Me and my brother turned around, went back to my apartment in Lindale, where my girlfriend, Shelly, at the time, and a bunch of my other buddies were showing up over there. I was having a party at my apartment that night. And we got over, went to partying, drinking, smoking weed, doing stupid teenager stuff. And at around 8.30 that night, two of your friends, Doug and Don, were dropped off by their mom. And she testified later at trial that while she was there to drop her sons off, you were standing out by her car and you were talking, and she told you that something was happening down at Brian Bowling's place. I asked her what she meant, and she told me that there's a bunch of cop cars down in the driveways. We were making all kinds of assumptions of what we thought it may have been, but we were far off base. The next morning... The doctors told Brian's family that there was no hope of recovery, and his parents agreed to donate his organs. And around noon, the day after he was shot, he was declared dead. Yeah. The next morning, I got up, and I found out through two different people that Brian had shot himself the night before. My mom had called me and told me, and also Doug and Don's grandmother had told told us about it when she came by to pick Doug and Don up. Now, during the initial investigation, the police took photos of the scene and talked to some of the family and other witnesses at the hospital. And of course, they talked to Kane, who was taken down to the police station and had his hand swabbed for gunshot residue. When the police spoke to Caprice, she corroborated Kane's story, that Brian and Kane told her on the phone that they had a gun and they were playing Russian roulette. The last thing she heard was Brian saying, I'm playing with a gun, followed by screaming and someone hanging up. After talking to Kane and Caprice, the police initially declared it an accidental death. An autopsy, if it was done, would have shown conclusively that Brian had been holding the gun up to his head when it was fired. Except one was never done, or at least there's no record of it. Unfortunately, without an autopsy, and after talking to Brian's family as well, investigators were free to get imaginative. So later that weekend, Detective Dallas Battle and Sergeant Mike Wallace brought Kane in for a second interview. This time, they recorded it. At first, Kane insists again and again that Brian shot himself and they have been playing Russian roulette and it was nothing more than that. But the detectives keep telling him, we know you had the gun. Just tell us you had the gun. If you tell us that you had the gun when it went off, nothing will happen to you. You won't be in trouble. Just tell us that. And after this goes on for half an hour or so, Kane eventually gives in and says that, yeah, the gun was in my hand when it went off. Lee, what has Kane told you about this interview? Well, he said the way they kept coming at him during the interview, they were making him seem like that it was no big deal. That he'd just say what they wanted him to say, that he wasn't going to be in any trouble. Just go ahead and admit to you did this, which say it was an accident, that's going to be it, and you, we can all go home. And Kane, being young like he was, battles tricked him. He just deceived him into it. I mean, Kane, he's easily misled. I mean, he's always been that way. He's a full-grown man now, and I hate to say it, but he's still easily misled today. So when Kane admitted to this, to having the gun in his hand when it accidentally goes off, he's arrested, charged with manslaughter, and released on bond. And then a few months later, that gunshot residue test comes back, and it's negative. There was no GSR in Kane's hands. Now, these tests are often junk science because the false positives and false negatives they can generate. You can hear all about that on Wrongful Commission Junk Science. We'll have that episode linked in this episode's bio. But Dallas Battle believed in these tests. And since Kane tested negative for gunshot residue, this gave Dallas Battle a problem. Because if this was a murder... That meant Kane couldn't have done it, and he now needed a second shooter, which is what made Lee's wrongful conviction even possible. So, Lee, how do you think you got drawn to this whole investigation? Well, shortly after Brian had shot himself and everything, just I was hearing all these rumors, these lies going around that I was there, that I was hit outside, all this and that. And 
I wasn't sure where all that was coming from at the time, but later down the line, after it was all said and done, I started piecing together that it had been coming from a guy that I knew when I was younger and had a little bad, bad blood with him. And his name was Tommy Hyde. Me and Tommy were never on good terms and stuff, and no doubt Dallas Battles was using him to spread stuff. Now, you and Battle had a bit of history, right? Yeah, we had a pretty deep history, man, Dallas Battles did. Do you think your previous run-ins with the law, including that recent safe theft, had anything to do with Battle zeroing in on you? Well, I'll tell you straight up, Dallas Battles was a corrupt cop. Crooked as they come. This man took an oath when he put that badge on to uphold the law. And even though I was a young, stupid teenage boy and stuff, Dallas Battles knew what he was doing. He was a full-grown man. And what he did to me, he broke every law that he knew, all of them, and wanted to make stuff seem like it was a certain way. And that's what he did. He spun it that way, made it look like it. There's no doubt in my mind he knew the truth about it. He just didn't want to put it out there because he was dead set on setting me up. Now, around this time, another Floyd County officer, David Stewart, joined the investigation. And he and Battle developed this theory that Brian had not been shot accidentally. There had been no Russian roulette, but rather this was all a gang-related revenge hit killing. Now, remember, this is late 1990s, and there's kind of a mass hysteria going on about, quote-unquote, gang violence in America, which, although was not prominent in Rome, Georgia at the time, was nevertheless sort of in the public zeitgeist and affecting how people interpreted this evidence, which is why Bone Thugs and Harmony and the fact that Brian and his friends listened to that became an important part of the case. Anyway, there was a woman named Deborah Kelly who Kane's mother once hired to clean her house. And she told the police that while she was cleaning the house, she had found this, what she called a devilish notebook because it had skulls and crossbones on it. And when she snooped through the notebook, that's how she says she discovered that you, Kane, and Brian were all members of this gang called the Freebirds. Now, Deborah Kelly also said that this notebook had the gang's rules written out inside of it. Now, Lee, what were some of the alleged rules that this gang had? Let's see. I remember one they tried to say was in there, never do drugs. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that really went well with us back in. Every time you turn around, we smoking pot. The gang's other rules were always stand by your brother, never yeah. talk to the police. Yeah. And if a brother does talk to police, you have to kill him. If you don't kill him, you get killed yourself. Yeah, that's what they said. So... The police decided that Brian had narked, quote unquote, on the other gang members by turning them in for the safe theft. And therefore, Lee and Kane had been obligated to kill him because of their gang rules. Don't forget that another influence on this murder was Bone Thugs and Harmony and their <laughs> 1996 uh, hit single, yeah. The Crossroads. The Crossroads, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Crossroads was a favorite song of Brian's. It was playing at the time he was shot, and the investigators tracked down the lyrics and decided that the song Crossroads is about shooting narcs, and that that was why the song was playing when Brian died. Yeah. And whoever listened to that song <laughs> knows that's not what that song is about. You know, this whole gang stuff, it's so comical to me. It simply is just a joke. And if I don't have a sense of humor about it, I'm going to cry about it because the fact is, the lives are what destroyed my life for many years. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Their theory was harebrained. It it defies logic and reason, but Battle and Stuart were committed to it and somehow needed to drum up evidence to support it. That's why they ended up exhuming Brian's body in a search for evidence. And in the coffin, when they opened it up, they found two handwritten notes. One of them had the lyrics to Crossroads written out on it, and the other was a note from Joseph Wilkins, the fourth member of the Safe Theft Group. It had a drawing of a little eagle carrying a bag of weed and a banner that said free birds. And the note to Brian below it was something like, fly high, brother, see you at the crossroads, love ya. But on the little flag the eagle's carrying, the one that says free birds on it, there's like a little addition made in the corner of the flag. It has the word narcs on it, and it's crossed out, like with a no smoking sign. In a trial, it's this note that's used as evidence that Brian was killed as a gang revenge murder. Although, it's worth noting that the handwriting of the word narcs is very different from the neat cursive that the rest of the note is written in. Yes, it is. And you know, Susan, I would not put it past Dallas Bados to have did that, because you done did some other shady stuff, so you ain't gonna stop her, not how I see it. And then in May of 1997, the police got two more key pieces to their theory. The first was a woman named Angela Bruce. 
who was interviewed and told Battle and Stewart that in about February of that year, she'd had a party. And that's when Kane and this other boy he brought along with him had bragged to her about killing Brian. They told her the whole story about how they had a gang and the rules said they had to kill any member who narked on them. So they put a pillow over his head and shot him. Now, the first time that Angela Bruce is interviewed, her story has nothing about Caprice in it. Nothing about the girl from the phone who says she heard Brian say he's playing Russian roulette and then screaming. So a couple days later, the cops go back and talk to Angela again. And this time she has more to add to the story. She says that Brian's girlfriend, Caprice, was also a member of the Freeburg gang and that she had conspired with Kane and Lee to kill him, which effectively discredited Caprice, who had initially corroborated that Brian's death was accidental. Now, Lee, did, did you even know Caprice? No, no, I'd never met Caprice before. I never actually seen her till we got to trial. Yeah, Kane hadn't actually met her either. I mean, he talked with her on the phone a few times when he was over at Brian's, but he hadn't seen her in person. But Angela's story, making Caprice part of the gang and part of the murder conspiracy, was still not enough by itself to hold this theory together. Lee, you had about 10 witnesses who could have placed you at your home that night. And no one in the living room at Brian's trailer mentioned you being there, said anything about you at all. But then Battle says he gets a tip. It wasn't just Brian's family who'd been in the living room that night. Two neighbors, Wayne and Charlie Childers, were also there. And apparently were never interviewed. Seven months later, he talks to them. And Wayne says, my brother Charlie, yeah, he saw something important that he needs to tell you. Now, Charlie Childers is deaf and didn't speak standard American Sign Language. But he allegedly somehow told Dallas Battle that after everyone had run to Brian's room that night, after hearing the gunshot, he'd stayed behind in the living room. And that's how he looked out a window and seen a boy running across the bowling's front yard. Battle would later testify at trial that Charlie had ID'd this boy in a lineup as Lee Clark. So with Angela Bruce and Charlie Childers, Dallas Battle and David Stewart now had what they needed to charge Ewan Kane with conspiracy and first degree murder. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. May the 23rd of 1997, Memorial Day weekend. I was on my way to go to the lake. My mom, my stepdad, my brother, my girlfriend, Shelly, her boy Dakota. We went down there to teach Dakota how to ski and everything. Well, I got over to my my mom's house and stuff, and she come out. She's crying and stuff. I didn't know what was going on. She told me they'd been by there with a warrant for my arrest. She said, well, they'd been by your daddy's place, too. I called my dad. First thing he asked when I got on there, he said, what have you done got yourself involved in? I said, I ain't did nothing. I said, this has got to be a mistake. We need to go on down here to the jail and find out what's going on. And we rode down there to the county jail. I went inside the county jail thinking I was going in there to get something straightened out. I go in there and tell the lady behind the register that my name and stuff. and what was going on and they come out there snatch me up throw me up on the wall talking about we got you don't try to run and i'm sitting there thinking to myself i mean really you think i come in here just to walk in here in the middle of the police station and say hey here i am and then turn around running that don't make no sense but they drove me in the back and in a holding cell in there and here come walking in dallas battles i looked at him and he sat down from me he said well he said i got you i said you playing all these games i don't even know what you talk about well he said we know you and kane we know y'all conspired to kill you buddy brian I said, everybody in this county knows that Brian Bowling's shot himself. Now, Lee, it was January of 1998 when you and Kane went on trial together. And you each had your own attorney. Your father had hired Rex Abernathy, and Kane had a court-appointed attorney named Larry J. Barkley. And the prosecutor, in his opening statement, started out by telling the jury that they were going to hear all about this vicious gang called the Freebirds. Oh, yeah. yeah. He built it all up on all that stuff, talking about a vicious gang called the Freebirds and... How they, I mean, basically, we're just notorious gangster killers. And it was a joke. 
It was a joke, and it wasn't a funny joke either. I mean, yeah, you can laugh at it because it's laughable, but it wasn't nothing funny about it. And then probably one of the more damaging things that happened at trial is that they played the tape of Ken's confession. They played the entire tape where he starts off saying that he did not shoot Brian, and eventually, after being told by the police that he wouldn't be in any trouble if he admitted to it, he admits to it. So the jury hears Cain in his own words say, the gun was in my hand when it went off. Now, this is all given to the jury. They listen to it. They hear about it. And then a few days later, the judge says, you know what? I changed my mind. That confession, probably not legal. It was improper. It shouldn't have been admitted. So the judge then tells the jury, pretend you never heard that. Ignore that confession. Let's proceed. Do you think the jury was able to forget the fact they'd heard that confession? No. No, I don't believe that one minute. I mean, look, we as human beings, it's human nature. When something is put in your head, you've got it in there. And I don't for one minute believe that you'll sit there and let the jury hear that and you just expect them to just disregard that, throw it out of their head. You never should have did it to begin with. It never should have been admitted to begin with. So the jury has just heard Kane confess to at least accidentally shooting Brian, but the theory at trial, the one they're trying to convict you of, is that you, Lee, are the shooter. And this whole thing was a gang-related revenge killing. So to support that, they bring in Deborah Kelly, the house cleaner, who testifies that she found the skull and crossbones notebook, which, by the way, never located, never found, never seen again, just gone. No physical evidence had ever existed beyond what Deborah Kelly and another woman, a friend of hers, say about them seeing it. How do you come in there using that? How does that work? Right. They never found any sort of evidence to actually back up the story that she gives. But the state's case relies more heavily on Angela Bruce and this alleged confession that you and Kane supposedly made to her at a party. According to Angela Bruce, you and Kane explained to her in explicit detail how this killing happened. And according to her, this is what you say. That night, you, Kane, and Caprice all conspired to kill Brian. And you did it by having Caprice call Brian on the phone to distract him. Then Kane shows up. He goes into Brian's bedroom and distracts Brian even further. Meanwhile, Lee is sneaking up outside of Brian's bedroom window. And by the way, at the time, this window was actually boarded up with a piece of plywood that you could kind of move back and forth to open. But according to Angela Bruce, what your role was to do was to shoot Brian through the window and then run away while Kane stayed behind to tell everyone that they'd been playing Russian roulette and Brian had lost. I couldn't wrap my mind around why she was up there saying what she was saying. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I mean, this woman has never laid eyes on me a day in her life. Doesn't even know me, but is up here telling these lies on me. And I wasn't really for sure what what the deal was there. And my attorney at the time, Rex Abernathy, he said, I'm going to tell you what it is. He said, they got something on her kids, and they're using that against her right here. That's That's where Rex's mind was at. So I went to thinking that stuff, too. I mean, I understand, okay, they're holding your kids over your head. And I get that part right there. A parent will do just about anything for their kids. But what would have been the right thing to do on her part would have been to go up to the police station and let it be known that they're over harassing her, trying to get her to tell lies, and using her kids holding them over her is what she should have did. But the jury heard Angela's testimony, and they heard the prosecutor tell them that there was no reason to find her not credible. And this was all shored up by Charlie Childers, the deaf witness who'd been at the bowlings watching TV that night. Now, Charlie's story doesn't actually come in through Charlie. The prosecution put Dallas Battle on the stand, and he testified to what Charlie had told him in his interview. Mind you, Detective Battle did not speak sign language, 
And Charlie did not speak American Sign Language. So how Charlie and Battle communicated is a mystery. Wayne, Charlie's brother, didn't speak sign language either. So there's no one there who could actually communicate with Charlie. So it's never explained how exactly Charlie was able to tell Dallas Battle any of this. And all of this happens without a single hearsay objection from Kane and Lee's attorneys, which is insane all by itself. But it gets worse. Dallas Battle testifies that Charlie told him that he had seen someone run across the front yard after the gunshot. And then, according to Dallas Battle on the stand, Charlie is given a lineup of like six photos and he circles Lee Clark. So they then put Charlie on the stand with an ASL interpreter. And I'm not trying to speak bad about anybody. He was on the stand. He could not use regular sign language. The interpreter could clearly not communicate with him. The interpreter told the judge at a couple different points that she was having difficulty communicating with him. She tells the court, Your Honor, he's not speaking American Sign Language. He's using home signs. The judge should have shut that down right then, but he lets it play on and play on. I can say that Charlie's testimony at your trial is hands down the most chaotic witness testimony I've ever encountered in any criminal trial, in any trial. Ever. The poor interpreter came in and very quickly realizes that she cannot effectively talk to Charlie. But it's also very clear that the story that Dallas Battle testified to about Charlie seeing anyone, let alone Lee Clark, run across the front yard, that's not something Charlie can say on the stand. He talks about all kinds of things, talks about dogs and puppies and about how the boy he saw was a black boy who had a wife. Yeah, black boy. I couldn't get. I couldn't get over that black boy, black hair. Yeah. Yeah, black boy, and black hair has a wife. You know, this is not going great. You can see frustration from everyone. Like the prosecutor is frustrated. The defense is frustrated. The judge, like everyone in this courtroom, is about to lose it because they've been here for hours trying to talk to Charlie and it's not working. So he does say he only saw Kane's story at the house that night. Just story. It's only after all that that they have the prosecutor stand behind Lee Clark, put his hands on his shoulders, that Charlie Childers allegedly says, "Yep, that's the boy I saw." So that was the prosecution's case, and the defense for its part calls Caprice Hoyt, and she says exactly the same thing she said the night that Brian was shot, which should have been compelling testimony for the defense. However, the prosecution made her an unindicted co-conspirator. They decided they did not have enough evidence to actually put her on trial, but they say she was also a gang member, also part of the murder conspiracy, and therefore that's why she's lying. Yeah. Now, so basically, we don't have enough. To, we don't have enough evidence to charge you as a co-conspirator, but we'll go ahead and muddy your name up with some lies, just so nobody believe the truth to tell him. Yeah. That's basically what it boiled down to. And then for his defense, Kane testifies on his own behalf, which unfortunately did nothing to help you. Actually, it hurt you quite a lot because Kane got up there and told the truth, and the truth was that the two of you had hung out together that night, and that you'd parted ways at the mini mart, but. It wasn't until Kane testified that anyone could actually place the two of you together that day. There was no other evidence that shows that you and Kane had ever even talked or met up or had anything to do with one another on that day. But then Kane gets on the stand and explains what happened earlier. He was also extremely emotional the whole time. Apparently, he cried through his entire testimony. Yeah, he was a, he was a disaster when he was on the stand. I mean, he could tell his emotions were getting the better of him. And I don't know, looking back on it now, I can... I could see it for what it was at the time. I mean, he's he's dealing with a lot of stuff in his head. He's got a friend that he he watched kill himself, and he's got all that bouncing in his head. And he was trying to trying to make things right by telling the truth, but just didn't know that a lot of people a lot of people perceived all his crying and all that stuff. They perceived that as some kind of guilt. That's not what it was, but that's the way a lot of people perceived it. At that point, Lee, how did you think the trial was going for you? 
I thought it was going great for me. I mean, I thought Rex Abernathy was doing a really good job at the time. I mean, I was sitting there thinking, yeah, man, he's, he's showing these people I ain't had nothing to do with this junk here. I'm finna go home. That's what I'm thinking the whole time. And me not knowing that little stuff that Rex was missing that he wasn't hitting on was going to wind up hitting us really bad in the end. So after closing arguments, the jury goes back to deliberate. And in Georgia, the charges that you and Kane are facing, murder and conspiracy to commit murder, even in the case of juveniles like you and Kane, they carry an automatic life sentence. The jury went in to deliberate on a Saturday, and the judge let them have the next day off. But on Monday, when they come back, on January 19th, 1998, it did not take them long before they returned with a verdict. When they read off that guilty verdict on both charges and found me guilty, I mean, I, I felt something, a feeling that come over me. That it's, it's difficult to explain it, but my heart was sitting in my chest. I was about to choke to death. Sitting there watching at 18 years old, I'm watching my life flash before my eyes. I'm seeing everything that I ain't never going to have. It's all just like it's passing in front of me. So much I've been to miss out on and wondering to myself, am I even going to make it through what they're going to send me to? I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed 
changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy, yeah. right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After we're convicted, we're sent down to the prison, Jackson State Prison. Me and Kane, we were on the same bus together. We pull up in there, looking at that prison gate out there, and just I looked at him, I said, we ain't going to make it, man. I said, I don't know what to tell you, man, but this ain't going to end well for us. And we get to going, going through it, Jack, Jackson Diagnostic, walking in there, and they take you around there and put you in that cell. And we used to hear them bars slamming home like they did. And I'm just sitting there knowing that here I am. My whole life's gone, been destroyed for some lies. And I sit there for 25 years. So your shared fight for freedom could not have been more dire. And you appealed your case to the Supreme Court of Georgia in 1999. And even though the court agreed that the non-existent gang rule book shouldn't have been entered into evidence, they weighed that against Angela Bruce's testimony about the alleged confession and ultimately upheld the convictions. Over the years, you and Kane spent a lot of time in the same prisons together. And eventually, when you were up in Walker, you met another teenager who had been convicted of murder in Floyd County. That was Joey Watkins. In fact, the two of you had had the same attorney, Rex Abernathy. Yes. And if it were not for Joey, well, I wouldn't have met you, Susan. And if it weren't for Joey, I'd still be in prison right now doing a life sentence. In 2016, I covered Joey's case for my podcast, Undisclosed. And while I was working on Joey's case, Joey told me about someone else he knew in prison who had also been falsely convicted of a murder in Floyd County as a teenager. And then one day when he was on the phone with me, he mentioned your case again, and I was like, can I talk to him? And he's like, yeah, hold on. I got him right here. And that's how we talked for the very first time. When you, and I got talking to you, and you got telling me what you were wanting to do and all that stuff. I was thinking to myself, well, it'd be odd to get this done. But I'll be honest, I, I fully expected when you went out and started talking to people that you were just going to get all the same lies that these people had been telling years ago. When Jacinda and I started investigating your case in 2021, we went down to Floyd County several times, looking for documents, talking to witnesses, and unfortunately, Dallas Battle died about a week before our very first trip. But we were able to talk to Angela Bruce, which was really eye-opening. She told us, just like you and your attorney had guessed, that Battle and Stewart had threatened to charge her with a crime and have family services take her children away if she didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Also, she said that Dallas Battle had frequently coerced her for sex, though she told us she'd always turned him down despite that. And when Jacinda and I went to her house, I mean, she was emotional, but she told us, I feel terrible for what happened to Lee and Kane, and I'm sorry, but I would have lost my kids if I hadn't done it. And what mother wouldn't do that if they had to? We also tracked down Charlie Childers. And equally importantly, we tracked down his high school teacher, who had known Charlie for decades, like 40 years, and he was familiar with both Charlie and his unique style of sign language, and could just talk to Charlie in a way that the trial translator couldn't. If I'm not mistaken, Susan, he's able to communicate with him better than anybody on the face of this planet. And we first began talking to Charlie with the translator. What struck me was just how eager and relieved he was to finally be able to tell a story, because he remembered this ordeal. He remembered Brian dying and testifying at trial. And clearly it had seriously affected him. But what we found out through the translator is that a trial 
Charlie hadn't been testifying about Brian's death at all. He thought he was there to talk about another shooting he'd witnessed. Because years before Brian's death, back in the late 70s, Charlie's brother Wayne had been in his bedroom with a friend named Ronnie Quarles. And the two boys had also been playing with a gun when Ronnie ended up getting shot in the head and later died. It was this event that Charlie thought the police were there to ask him about. And it was Ronnie's death he was trying to describe to them with his own limited home signing abilities. And when we explained to Charlie that the trial he'd been at had been about Brian's death, not Ronnie's, Charlie told us, but I didn't see anything for Brian's death. I was at the house, but I didn't know anything about how he died. And he definitely never saw a boy run through the yard. And he'd never seen Lee Clark before ever. It was a trip to me to find out all these years later that that's what Charlie was testifying about. By then, the Georgia Innocence Project had also taken on your case. And you ended up being the first non-DNA-related case that they had an exoneration in. Based on the evidence that we found in proof, they were able to file an extraordinary motion for a new trial in Floyd County, as well as a habeas petition in the county where you were in prison. But since the Georgia Innocence Project couldn't also represent your co-defendant, that meant that Kane didn't have an attorney. After our show aired, though, Luke Martin, an attorney from Floyd County, and Ross Hamrick, who was in the PD's office there, contacted us. We put them in touch with Kane, and they became his attorneys as well. So all of the attorneys were preparing for a hearing. But then, in a case that was already beyond shocking, perhaps the most shocking thing yet occurred. The Floyd County District Attorney ended up talking to your counsel and agreeing that this case should be dismissed. Yes, they did. I mean, it was evident that there was misconduct with the cops in there. I mean, there was no avoiding it. I mean, Dallas Battles and David Stewart broke so many laws doing this. I mean, it was so obvious that there was no sense of fighting it. Do you remember getting the news that... You and Kane would be released? I do remember getting the news. I had called my dad, and I was telling him that I thought I was going to a hearing on December the 6th. And he said, well, you ain't going to be going no hearing on December the 6th. You got a hearing coming up on December the 8th. And when December the 8th gets here, you're going to be coming home. When he told me that right there, Susan, I'm still riding that cloud right now. I, I've never felt a feeling so great in my life. I'll stay on that cloud now for the rest of my life because I know what it's like to sit behind prison walls and not have a life, to sit there and have it all snatched from you for something you didn't even do, to finally have my life back, to have my freedom back. And I'll tell you, I plan on living all of it up to the fullest every day, no matter what comes my way. Anything I'm going to face in life cannot be nowhere as difficult as what I faced while I was in prison. What's hard for a lot of people out here is a cakewalk to me because I walk worse paths. Far worse. So, Lee, first of all, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story with us. I know you've been trying to rebuild your life since you were released. And if listeners want to help support you in that, they can go to MightyCause.com and search for Lee Clark. Now, this is the part of the show called Closing Arguments. It is your chance to share any final thoughts that you might have with our listeners about anything at all. The floor is yours. I would like, I mean, if there's any young young listeners out there or any, any gotta be young listeners there's anybody out there just listening in general just if you're doing some wild stuff out there that you shouldn't be doing anything like that i mean there's all kind of stuff that can happen to your life just be smart about things approach life from from a positive angle i mean look i i sit behind prison walls for 25 years for a crime i didn't commit but i didn't bring the negativity of it with me i didn't let the negativity of it destroy me Staying headstrong and believing in yourself, a lot of times, if you'll just stay that way, I mean, yeah, it's not guaranteed to pay off every time, but it's a better attitude to have 
than to sit there and approach everything in life from a negative standpoint. Because negativity is only going to weigh you down and destroy you in the end. So anything in life, approach it from a positive angle and take the good from it. Even when there ain't much good to be found, well, pick what is good up and take it with you. It may not be much there to grab, but grab what you can. And uh, I'm so thankful to everybody from Joey Watkins to you, to the Innocent Project, to Jacinda, Kevin, everybody. I'm just so thankful to everybody that just put all the hard work and time and effort into all this stuff to get this truth to come out like it did. I tell you, it's something I'm not gonna live now. I'll be living on this cloud nine for a long time. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Susan Simpson. Thanks to executive producers Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis for inviting me to be here. And thanks also to our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production comes from three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me on Twitter at The View from LL2 and Instagram at SOO Simp. And you can listen to my podcast, Proof and Undisclosed, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast, an association with Signal Company Number One. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.